Welcome to the first episode of The Sound of IR, a podcast that seeks to educate aspiring interventional radiologists about the clinical practice of IR. I'm Ben Rausch, a third-year medical student at the Western Michigan University Homer Stryker MD School of Medicine. And I'm Santa Harwald, a third-year medical student at the Tufts University School of Medicine. We each realized the educational power of podcasts for medical education and worked with a great team of students, residents, and attendings to create a resource specifically for interventional radiology. We will be the hosts of this podcast, and we hope that you will find the podcast both educational and enjoyable. We're very excited to introduce the first episode of the Sound of IR podcast, which discusses pediatric interventional radiology. In this episode, Dr. Aparna Anam, a pediatric interventional radiologist at the Children's Hospital of Colorado, discusses the clinical practice of pediatric IR with Rajat Chand, a radiology resident at the Cook County Health and Hospital System in Chicago. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Rajat Chan. I'm a PGY3 R2 in Chicago, and uh, we are joined here today with uh, Dr. Aparna Anam. She's a pediatrician and pediatric interventional radiologist. Uh, she completed her general pediatrics residency at the Infants and Children's Hospital of Brooklyn, as well as a diagnostic radiology residency at Baylor College of Medicine. She further subspecialized in fellowships in pediatric radiology and pediatric interventional radiology at Texas Children's Hospital and vascular and interventional radiology at the University of Colorado. She is currently an assistant professor in pediatric and adult interventional radiology at the Children's Hospital of Colorado, University of Colorado. She has a strong interest in resident and fellow education, as well as future training pathways for pediatric interventional radiologists. Dr. Anam, thank you so much for being here with us tonight. And thanks for having me, Rajat. So uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, would you mind, you know, telling us a little bit about your background and uh, what got you into uh, interventional adult and pediatric uh, interventional radiology? Well, I think, um, you know, I probably was always a very visual person when I was growing up. I always liked um, drawing, painting, and I really uh, enjoyed looking at images. And that was probably just, you know, me as a youngster. And then I think, you know, I went to medical school. I loved working with children. And so that went into pediatrics. At some point, um, I'm going to say that I saw the dark, and I saw the dark side, and I decided to go to radiology instead, and um, I've enjoyed it ever since. So um, doing diagnostic radiology, working with kids um, has been fantastic, but I think from there, um, you know, getting a chance to actually put some clinical skills to use and doing interventional with children has been even better. So, um, you know, that's kind of how I combined everything. And I really, you know, enjoyed my adult time as well, because I think, you know, the different kinds of cases, uh, those skills always translate well into any setting. So that's kind of how I came to where I am today. It took a long time, but um, I would say I'm very happy with what I'm doing. As a radiology resident, very early in my career, not too sure about the field of pediatric interventional radiology, um, I and the Sound of IR podcast have come up with a few questions that we think would be a good basic premise for anyone who's uh, maybe interested in the field. The first question is, how does pre-procedure assessment differ in children versus adults? So um, when you're thinking about um, pre-procedure assessment of a child, um, you know, it's different for a lot of reasons for kids. And some of that, I think, is because you have a huge age range that you're considering when you're looking at pediatric patients. You know, you're looking at anything from from birth up until, um, you know, an 18-year-old or a 21-year-old. So there's a huge age range that you're dealing with with children. Sometimes, um, you know, 
children are not necessarily age appropriate. They may have some behavioral issues. And always with um, children, there are families to consider as well. So there's usually a parent attached or a legal guardian or someone that's in charge of this patient. So, uh, you, you know, when you're assessing a child, you're not just looking at one person, you're looking at a group of people actually. And it's important for everybody to be on the same page and for everybody to understand the procedure, the necessity for it, and what the um, care plan will be. So I think it's a little bit more complicated that way from adults. I see. And what about anesthesia? Uh, Can you discuss the implications of using anesthesia in children? Yeah, um, I would say that um, for most places that actually want to be doing a good amount of pediatric IR, uh, you need to have good access um, to sedation uh, for your patients. And there are plenty of procedures in peds IR that can be done without sedation, but there are far more that probably would require it. And if you want to do really complex cases, you're going to need some good um, you know, pediatric anesthesia. So um, now, you know, in adults, we're always doing moderate sedation on patients. We're administering our own medications, um, you know, and that's one way of doing it. But I'd say that if you're not actually very familiar with children, with vital signs in children, um, and with, um, you know, PALS, uh, you know, pediatric advanced life support with kids, probably not a good idea to be necessarily doing the moderate sedation yourself. So, um, you know, you have to turn to your hospital resources, see what you have. And sometimes that can be a little challenging. So, you know, you have sedation teams in some hospitals that will help provide the sedation. Sometimes you have um, anesthesia teams that are providing the sedation. So, um, you know, getting that resource uh, to really adequately sedate your kids during procedures can be a bit challenging. Can you talk about um, obtaining consent uh, from families and, and patients? What's the protocol there? Okay, so um, and when obtaining consent from um, patients and families, uh, you know, I really think knowing the rules uh, is probably the most important thing you can do because, um, you know, when it comes down to it, uh, you know, anyone who's under 18 can't, um, can't consent for themselves. They actually need to have a parent, a legal guardian um, actually consent for them. And sometimes there are sticky social situations where, uh, you know, you might be looking at, you know, someone from the state that's actually in charge of the patient. So, um, you know, that's really, those are the people that actually you have to turn to for consent. There are other, you know, sticky situations in, in pediatrics where, um, you know, if a child is actually, if a teenager is pregnant or if they actually have their own child, then technically they're considered emancipated. And so they actually uh, can consent for themselves. Um, you know, I'd say to about, you know, very young children, you know, whatever the parent is consenting to goes. And that's really, you know, because they really are the ones working with the child. They know their children. But when it comes down to, um, you know, you have a teenager who uh, maybe is, you know, resistant to doing a procedure, uh, you know, ultimately, yes, you know, the, the family, the parents have that right to actually sign for it. But it's best to probably just have that discussion with a patient so that they know that they're involved in their own care. Um, and this is a teenager. So, um, you know, that they understand what's going on. And I think that actually, you know, they can be reasoned with, um, you know, if there are times when perhaps they're not necessarily wanting the procedure, but the parents want to consent for it. So um, know your rules, know who actually needs to be signing there on the paper. And um, that's probably the most important thing. How about the pre-procedure laboratory studies? Um, The ones that are obtained in adults, are they the same for children or how does that differ? 
So um, it's actually different uh, between children and adults. And that's probably because most children, uh, your average kid is going to be much healthier than, um, than a lot of adults who may be on anticoagulation. Um, some adults may have a history of cancer, so they may actually have some lab abnormalities that are always going to be there. Whereas with children, if they're generally healthy and they're not on any medications, those numbers are usually pretty normal. So there are always going to be exceptions. Um, but an average kid who maybe has a perfed appy um, with an abscess and needs a drain, they're probably um, going to do fine. With, you know, they'll have normal platelets and INR. So I don't really check um, you know, labs specifically for those numbers. Um, now, there are, of course, different, you know, kids are going to, more complicated you are, um, you know, if you have any type of, you know, leukemia, your cells counts are going to be off. And so there's always going to be exceptions to that. But and then for the most part, for, you know, pretty straightforward basic procedures, we don't have to necessarily look at um, too many labs. So, um, you know, the other thing to keep in mind, again, is that age comes into play. So if you have a neonate, their parameters for what, you know, are their coagulation profiles is actually kind of different um, than what we have for adults. Also, you know, neonates tolerate much higher potassium levels than adults. So you have to kind of know what your lab values are uh, when you're actually looking at them. So, um, yeah, lab values, um, you know, they certainly differ at what we're going to look at for children versus adults. And what about the uh, use of antibiotics? Are they routinely used in children for procedures? Uh, no, actually, antibiotics are not um, routinely used in children. And I think, you know, it really depends on the circumstances. So when I have uh, patients that, um, you know, if I have a, a liver transplant patient, and those patients are usually on some type of immunosuppression, um, and if I'm going to be placing a biliary drain, then perhaps it's for obstruction, maybe they're already looking at a picture of cholangitis, I probably will be giving them antibiotics beforehand. Um, you know, with my renal patients for, um, you know, obstructed, um, you know, hydronephrosis of infected pyelonephritis, I, you know, if, if that's something that I'm going to be, you know, putting a drain into, then yes, I'll probably be giving antibiotics beforehand. Um, but it's a case-by-case situation. So, um, you know, again, somebody that I'm planning on putting a, a coil or a stent into, yes, I'll probably give them something. But um, be careful about what you give for children. Because, um, you know, when it comes down to it, our, the antibiotics we use in adults are not always indicated in children. So fluoroquinolones are a good example um, that, we, you know, we give ciprofloxacin to adults for procedures. Um, but when it comes down to giving them to children, they're generally not used in kids. And that's primarily because of a, a very rare risk of tendon rupture. Um, that's out there, but you know, it's, it's pretty rare. And uh, there are certain instances you actually would use it, but certainly not as a prophylactic antibiotic. Um, another, um, you know, antibiotic might be ceftriaxone. And that's something that you wouldn't necessarily give in, um, you know, to a neonate just because of the potential for biliary sludging. So there's certainly, you know, not something I would say there's a, a routine antibiotic um, use, that, you know, I think that kind of varies by procedure and clinical situation. Contrast, is mm -hmm. the use of contrast different in children versus adults? Uh, yeah, actually contrast can be used very differently in children um, because we are, you know, children are so much smaller um, and we do weigh things out in a CC per kilogram manner. So while let's say you're doing a CT scan, a lot of places will say that for a CT scan, you wanna give about two CCs per kilo of contrast. 
Well, that's not very much in some small patients. So there's other ways that you can kind of expand your volume. You can dilute your contrast a little bit um, with saline. If you have a small kid, um, you know, there may not be that much tissue to penetrate. So you actually might still get some very good images with that. But, um, you know, you always have to remember that you're there to do a procedure uh, to, you know, make a diagnosis and always to, you know, treat something if it's life-threatening. So, you know, if you do need to give extra contrast, um, you know, I've certainly given more than two per kilo for a kid, um, you know, in situations where, you know, we were dealing with something life-threatening, such as a bleed. Um, you know, if you need to do that last run and that last amount of contrast so that you can, you know, establish if a bleed is there or not, then you're probably going to weigh your risks of, you know, this life-threatening situation versus trying to handle, um, you know, some injury to the kidney afterwards. So, you know, those are kind of things um, you weigh throughout the procedure, really. Um, but yeah, if you, you know, you're going to give a little bit more contrast in some instances. And, you know, again, this is where lab values come into play again, but, um, you know, renal function in children neonates are going to keep a very, very low um, creatinine level. So if you start seeing numbers like 1.2 creatinine for a neonate, that's extremely high. That's something we would consider normal in an adult, but for a baby, that's very abnormal. So again, know your values. And when you're monitoring kids after a procedure for any type of renal injury, watch the trend. Can you give us a bird's eye view of important principles regarding temperature control and radiation exposure in the angio suite? Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Temperature control is actually a very, very big issue because we have to keep our rooms cool um, for a number of reasons. Obviously, we want to keep the equipment at a certain temperature. You want to keep the, the people, the staff in the room comfortable. And when we're wearing lead, it's really not that comfortable to have, you know, the room temperature cranked all the way up. But for the patient, it's actually quite important. So um, that is definitely something to consider whenever you're gonna treat a pediatric patient. So the younger the patient, the less thermoregulatory control they actually have. Um, and so you have to do a few things to kind of optimize that. So one thing I would recommend is a temp probe to kind of monitor their body temperature. Um, you wanna monitor that throughout the case. If you can only expose the parts that, of their body that you're working with and keep them wrapped up in blankets, Otherwise, um, then that actually helps preserve some body heat. If you're, you know, dealing with a baby and you can actually give them a hat to wear, um, babies lose most of their heat um, through their heads. And so actually that's a good way to kind of keep them warm. Um, and also we use bear huggers uh, in cases, protect, especially the longer cases, um, you know, to actually uh, keep a patient at a, you know, good um, body temperature. Uh, always make sure that the pediatric, you know, your equipment is going to be pediatric sized um, because, you know, when you think about, um, you know, what you're actually uh, using on patients, if you have an O2 SAT probe that's, you know, use an adult, it's going to fit their finger fine. But if you try to take the same one and put it on a pediatric patient, um, it could actually probably hold their entire hand. And also in answering your question about radiation exposure, in the angio suite, it's actually a huge concern always for pediatric interventionalists and probably a huge factor in why we choose to do so many procedures by ultrasound. Um, there's always going to be cases where you can't do a procedure by ultrasound, you're going to have to use fluoro or CT. And when you do run into that situation, you know, put your, put your machine in a, a pediatric low dose protocol. Uh, you can cone down your image, optimize patient positioning possibly even decrease the frames per second for you know, what you need to do. But um, you always wanna make sure that you're using the lowest dose um, that's reasonably possible. And also um, you have this playing in the back of your mind to keep 
the dose down. But again, you're always there to perform, you know, these procedures and to actually potentially fix a situation like a, a bleed that might be life threatening. So um, this is one of those situations, again, where, you know, you want to keep your dose of radiation low, but if you do need to do one more run, and that's going to help you make that determination um, of whether there's a bleed or not, um, then you might just have to do it. Moving on to after the procedure is over, mm-hmm. um, how is post-operative patient care and monitoring different uh, in children? Yeah, so um, post-operative care actually uh, is very different in kids um, in some ways because let's say you do an angiogram uh, on a patient and you want to keep their legs straight for four hours afterwards or you want the child to lie down um, on a biopsy site. It's actually kind of difficult sometimes to get them to listen, especially when they're coming out of anesthesia. So you may be giving them a little extra sedation on the way afterwards just so that they can kind of cooperate with you a bit. Um, also, uh, you have to make sure they're not pulling out their drains and catheters immediately after you've placed them. Um, and, you know, sometimes that helps to have a family member there to keep an eye on them and also to comfort the kid as they come out of their procedure. Um, now, if this patient, you know, that I worked on is admitted, I'm going to be monitoring them on the floor. So I'm going to be rounding on them daily. If they're admitted to another team, I'll be talking to that team about what needs to be done, um, especially my, you know, tubes and drains. So, um, you know, you can always make a recommendation as an interventionalist. If you need, think that a drain should, you know, require some TPA, you need to pull a drain, you need to re-image uh, a patient to see how their drain's doing, um, then it's always good to be involved and actually be the face of IR on the floors and actually, um, you know, work with your teams that way. So, um, you know, as far as admitting patients for a PEDS IR service, it would be great to say that we, um, you know, have that capability, but, you know, there's not a lot of places necessarily give the pediatric interventionalist uh, full admitting privileges. And, you know, some hospitals may do that. Um, I would say that if you are going to do that and you're not comfortable with admitting kids, have a pediatrician uh, come and consult on your patient. Um, you know, call them in as a consult. So that way they can make some recommendations to you for, uh, you know, whether it's a dietary change or better pain management. Um, You know, that's a pretty invaluable kind of um, kind of consult. So I would definitely recommend that. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, So what I'm gathering from you is that, you know, PEDS-IR is just as clinical as uh, adult IR. And, you know, in the same line of questioning, are pediatric interventionalists expected to longitudinally manage their patients? And do you think this is reflected in fellowship training or even the new IR residency? So I think that's a good question, actually, about um, the new IRDR residency uh, in terms of, you know, what our clinical exposure actually uh, is. So currently, um, you know, we have a lot of, uh, we don't have that much exposure in pediatrics, but I think it's something where you know, the people who are interested really advocate for having that included in their training. So uh, you can always get a little pediatrics exposure in your internship year. You can also try to get that exposure um, throughout your IRDR residency during your clinical months. And perhaps when you're actually training, um, you know, you're looking at those clinical months, instead of choosing, um, you know, some rotations, you might opt for a PICU or NICU month which um, are very unique to pediatrics and would be very useful uh, in the long run. So um, that's something that I'd like to see actually become more part of an, an option in our you know, training programs for residency and also that we can include them in some of our pediatric IR fellowships so that we can work with more of our pediatric colleagues on the floors and actually you know, we can all teach each other a little bit about peds IR and a little bit more peds to, um, to the interventionalist.
Well, perfect. I'm really excited to see where the training is headed. Um, that wraps up our set of questions. I hope everyone learned just as much as I did from this uh, very valuable segment. Dr. Anam, thank you so much for your time and uh, answering these uh, basic sort of questions when it comes to PEDS IR. Yeah, you're very welcome. Anytime. Well, Ben, I know that I learned a lot from this episode. How about you? Absolutely. Thank you to both Rajat and Dr. Anam for starting our podcast off on such a good foot. Uh, Before we sign off, we have a few general announcements. So if you would like to be a part of a podcast episode, we'd love to hear from you. If you are interested in interviewing a practicing IR physician, being interviewed by a member of our team, or contributing in any other way, please let us know. Our email address is thesoundofir, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at the underscore sound underscore of underscore IR. And both of these things will be found on our profile in the podcast. And with that, we'll sign off. Please keep an eye out for our next episode where we'll learn about the role of interventional radiology and gastrointestinal bleeding.